One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. You can be seated. Good morning. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. As Kevin mentioned, we've been going through the, uh, through the seven letters of Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And today we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. I'll start reading here in verse 12. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one names or that no one knows except for the one who receives it. This is God's word. Let's go before him and ask his help in understanding and applying it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is good and perfect and infallible. Father, we need your spirit this morning to come with power to us as we study your word together. Father, we need you to reveal sin in our life. Father, to... Uh, help us to hear these warnings to your churches, including this one to Pergamum. Lord, reveal the areas of our life where, we're, where we are really no different than they are. And Father, will you confront us in our sin and help us to turn to Jesus, the bread of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So three weeks ago, and this is the kind of nerdy thing I keep up with, um, but three weeks ago, the world celebrated somewhat of a grim anniversary on April 14th. Um, that marked the 109th anniversary of the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Um, and so for 109 years, the world has sort of been captivated by the story of the Titanic, right? Um, we, we've been somewhat baffled and mystified how this majestic, beautiful ship that had so much promise could end up costing over 1,500 people their lives through negligence, right? And countless stories have been told about this, uh, about this ship. We've got tons of documentaries, and my poor wife has had to watch most of them. Um, but we all sort of know what happened to Titanic, right? Aside from all the unanswered questions about why exactly it happened and how it happened, we know that fundamentally what happened to this ship was as it was making its way across the Atlantic, it struck a massive iceberg, and it punctured the hole, 
And when it did, it allowed water to pour into the hull of the ship. And rather than making port like it was supposed to, the ship ended up broken in half at the bottom of the Atlantic where it sits today. And the interesting thing is that you could sort of say that what ultimately caused the demise of the Titanic wasn't so much the iceberg. Fundamentally, it was the fact that water that was supposed to be outside of the ship got into the ship, right? In the same way, the church was meant to be in the world but not of it, right? A ship is meant to be in water, but the moment water gets into a ship, it becomes catastrophic. For the church, we were made to function best in the midst of a sinful world. But when the sin of the world begins to get inside the church, we begin to sink, right? It has catastrophic effects on the church. And we're going to look at a church in Pergamum today that while it had not yet reached that catastrophic breaking point, like we're going to see in the next two churches over the next couple of weeks, the church in Pergamum was in great danger of sin getting into the church and having terrible effects Rather than being a a propagator of light to the world, it was going to be extinguished by its own sinfulness. And so this morning, we're going to look at three things about the church in Pergamum. We're going to look first at what they did well, right? It's just like a a report card that Jesus gives. We're going to look at what they did well, their faithfulness or their endurance. And then two, we're going to look at what they didn't do so well, their negligence. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the reward that Jesus promises them. So first, let's look at their endurance. Let's see what they did well. Jesus begins in verse 13 with a common phrase in these letters. Jesus says, I know. Jesus says to his church, I know. He identified himself back in chapter 1 as the one who has eyes like flames of fire, that nothing escapes his vision. He sees everything and he knows the circumstances and the works of his church. So what does he see in Pergamum? First, he says that he sees their circumstances. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, why in the world would he say this about Pergamum? There's probably a couple of reasons for this. But for one, the city of Pergamum uh, essentially had this really high terrace as you approach the city. And there were four massive temples on this terrace dedicated to four different Greek gods, two of which uh, was Zeus and then Asclepius, uh, who was sort of uh, known as the god of healing. Uh, And he was symbolized by a coiled serpent. And this temple attracted people from all around uh, this part of the map here. People would come for healing. And so we know, obviously, Satan is symbolized as a coiled serpent, often in Scripture and as a dragon later on in Revelation. So it's possible that's what Jesus has in mind here. But another reason why is because Pergamum was the headquarters for Rome, for the seat of the government in this area. And so because of that, Pergamum was really known for being devoted to emperor worship. So not just worshiping Rome itself, but actually deifying its leader, its emperor. And so they just simply kind of lumped in the emperor with all the rest of the idols they were already worshiping. And at this time, the emperor was Satan's chief instrument in persecuting God's people. And so I think Jesus has both of these in mind, and he calls this the place where Satan dwells, the place where Satan's throne is. And so this pagan culture that Jesus is addressing, where Pergamum is located, This would have consisted 
this pagan religion would have consisted of feasts and festivals. It included eating food sacrificed to idols. It would have included sexual immorality as a sort of religious rite. And Satan was at work through both of these to create the perfect culture for the persecution of God's people. And indeed, there was persecution already underway. We talked last week about Smyrna, and Jesus warned Smyrna, hey, persecution is coming, don't give up. But here, persecution had already arrived. Jesus mentions a man named Antipas, and he calls him his faithful witness. That word witness literally means martyr. Uh, Antipas was likely the pastor of this church, and church tradition tells us that he was boiled alive for failing to worship like this pagan culture wanted him to worship. They would have been required in the city of Pergamum to bow a knee to the emperor and worship him, to offer incense in the temples to all these different gods. And Antipas refused, and it cost him his life. We know from several other sources in this day that in Pergamum, the only way a Christian could survive that type of persecution, that kind of death, was actually if they would publicly curse the name of Jesus. So it's notable then that Jesus commends this church for holding fast to his name and not denying the faith. In the face of brutal persecution, the church in Pergamum would not accept another Lord in Jesus' place, even under the pain of death. Jesus commends them for this. Joseph Tunn, uh, a Baptist pastor who suffered persecution at the hands of the communist regime in Romania, wrote a book titled A Theology of Martyrdom. Sounds like enjoyable reading, right? Um, I'm sure that's on several shelves in y'all's homes. Um, But in this book, he argued that Jesus makes his people stewards of many many things in life, right? And we would say Jesus makes us stewards of our time, uh, of our talents, and of our treasure, our money, our possessions, right? Jesus makes us stewards. But he argued there's actually something that he also gives us stewardship over, and that's the way that we suffer for Jesus, particularly in the face of impending death. He argued that perhaps the most precious commodity someone can be given in a hostile climate or hostile culture like this was the ability to suffer well for the sake of Jesus, and that in doing so, it would reach a multitude of people. It's it's sort of counterintuitive us to, to think this way, but... God has historically used the death of his saints as the catalyst for church growth. Right? We think back to our study in Acts that we just went through. And the, when we see the gospel really start to go forth rapidly and we see people coming to know Jesus is after the death of Stephen, a young man who was a promising leader in the church. The death of his saints is what Jesus uses to push the gospel out. And it's for this reason that Tertullian said that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Persecution tends to look very negative to us. We're very comfortable here. And so the thought of people in China suffering for the sake of the gospel is foreign to us, and we would have a tendency to pity those people. But historically, and I think we do need to pray for those people, we shouldn't just relish persecution. But uh, historically, we need to see that Jesus has always used persecution to strengthen the church and to send the gospel out to the nations. What was intended to be for the harm of these people, they had stood firm. These Christians had been given a tremendous opportunity to glorify God, even unto death as their Lord had, and they held fast. They made the most of their persecution, and as a result, they received high marks from Jesus in this area. 
And so we would be tempted to think this is the greatest threat facing the church in Pergamum is what's going on outside of the church, right? Any place where a pastor gets boiled alive, we're going to assume that's the worst thing they've got going for them. But Jesus is actually more concerned with what's going on inside the church. This brings us to point number two, which is their negligence. In verse 14, Jesus says this. He says, but I have a few things against you. So you, you stood fast. You didn't deny the faith, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, Jesus here says first that there are some who hold the teachings of Balaam, that that's one of the things he has against this church. Now, Balaam is sort of a strange figure in the Old Testament. You probably remember Balaam best as the guy with the talking donkey, if you've ever heard that story. Um, but Balaam's story is really told in Numbers 22 through 25. And uh, essentially, I'm just going to sort of summarize those chapters for you. Balaam was a prophet for hire. This was not a, a godly prophet. He would have been more akin to like one of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. And so he was a prophet for hire. And as the Israelites are making their way to the promised land in the book of Numbers, Moab was one of the inhabiting people groups there. And they've heard all the stories about this nation of Israel coming through and how they've got a God that is, I mean, just knocking everybody down that stands in their path. And so the king of Moab starts to get really nervous and realizes we don't have a chance against the God of Israel or these people that he's protecting and causing to flourish. So he had a plan. Right, I've heard about this guy, and whoever he blesses, they're blessed. And whoever he curses, they're cursed. So go get him. Give him all the money that it takes and get him to come here, and we're going to get him to curse the Israelites. And Balaam, looking to make a quick buck, he does come eventually to the king of Moab. And so Balak, the king, takes him on top of this hill and says, All right, there's Israel. Go ahead and give, give your curse. And so Balaam tries to curse Israel three times, and every time he opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit takes over and only allows him to utter a blessing over the nation of Israel. So what was meant to assail and afflict the church of the Old Testament ends up blessing the people of Israel. What was meant to harm them ended up blessing them. And so Balaam realized that this persecution didn't work, so he switched tactics. In the words of Jesus, he taught the king of Balak to or taught King Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel. The way that he did this was he went to the king and said, Hey, listen, God's not letting me curse them. So what you need to do is you need to take the Moabite women and send them into the Israelite camp to lead the men into sexual immorality. And they'll abandon God and, and start worshiping your idols. And then God will take care of the rest. That's exactly what happened. Men did commit sexual immorality. They did give themselves over to idolatry. And the result... In Numbers 25 was that God judged the sin of Israel and ended up killing 25,000 Israelites by plague. And this, Jesus says, is what's happening in Pergamum. See, Satan had already used his puppet, the emperor, to persecute the church. And rather than it squashing the church, the church had continued to grow. It had continued to remain faithful. And so Satan switched tactics. He breached the church by gaining a foothold in the lives of a few within the church that Jesus calls the Nicolaitans. And these few, like Balaam, they put a stumbling block in front of the church by urging them to participate in all the pagan idolatry and immorality of the culture around them. And as a result, 
Pergamum was in danger of becoming like the world rather than reaching the world. Jesus says that these groups were teaching people to participate in all the religious festivities of their culture. And and for us, right, that seems like a pretty easy temptation to resist. We, We imagine sort of a pagan culture like this, worshiping Zeus and Asclepius and all these other gods and bowing down to an emperor, and we think, well, I mean, how hard is that to resist? But for these people, all of their social life in the city revolved around this idol worship. Uh, to resist this kind of religious festivities going on in the city at its most minimal was to, was to make you a social outcast, right? This meant that you were completely cut off from the social life of the city. You were blackballed socially. But it could also mean that you were going to lose your job. And at worst, it meant that you were sort of sticking your head above the crowd and you were inviting persecution on yourself. And so what was happening was the Nicolaitans were coming along And they saw it as being very prudent to just sort of conform to what was going on in the culture. Right? After all, you can kind of imagine the logic. I mean, well, guys, these idols aren't real. Right? So, I mean, what's the big deal? Just keep it in your mind that these idols aren't real. Go bow the knee to Caesar or uh, the emperor. You know, we know that he's not actually a god, but just go along with it. Then you can still be devoted to Jesus. And everybody wins, right? You don't have to deal with the social cost. You don't have to put yourself in the way of persecution. It's a win-win, right? But the problem is that the pragmatic route isn't the faithful route. And sometimes we can be so concerned with with, with doing what's expedient that we give very little thought to what Jesus has actually commanded us to do. Sometimes doing the faithful thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense on paper. But here they were willing to compromise just enough to avoid the cost and still stay faithful to Jesus. So they were sort of half covenanting with the world and with Jesus. But what I want you to notice is not just that there were some in the church doing this, right? but that Jesus, when he confronts the church in Pergamum, he doesn't condemn the church as a whole for compromising. Rather, he says it is some in the church. And that's actually what he has against the church. See, the church in Pergamum had failed to confront these erring members in their church. And this compromising attitude that was being allowed to sort of grow in the church was posing a great danger to them first. It was was posing a great danger to the members themselves, right? The people who actually held this teaching. Jesus began this letter by describing himself as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. This symbolizes his role as a judge, right? A sword has two purposes, right? It, it, It can both protect and it can afflict. A judge, in the same way, can both condemn and pardon. He can pronounce guilty or innocent. Jesus says, I'm the one who wields the sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 16, he tells them what he's going to do with that sharp two-edged sword. He tells them that he's going to come and war against the people in the church holding this view. So it's a danger to the people who held this view. Secondly, this heresy was not only a danger to them, but it was also a danger to the church as a whole. In comparing this to the sin of Balaam, Jesus is saying, hey, look, just as the sin of Balaam led to the stumbling and subsequent demise of many in Israel, so the sin of these few will cause many to stumble in the church. Paul, in Galatians 5, 
was talking about false teaching that it was uh, that was afflicting the church in Galatia. And he compares false teaching to uh, to leaven, right? To yeast. I don't make bread. I buy it in a can. But I've heard whenever you're making bread, uh, you know, whenever you're baking bread and you add yeast to it, right? It doesn't stay isolated when you put it in the dough. Over time, it's going to make its way through the whole batch of dough. And in the same way, when false teaching is allowed to enter into the church, when worldliness is allowed to enter into the church, it doesn't remain isolated with only a few members. It's going to spread. It's going to have an effect. Now, for us, here in the West, we have a very individualistic view of Christianity. Right? The way we tend to view Christianity is that it's all about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. And so as a result, we tend to evaluate corporate worship and church membership by how they benefit me. Right? So because of that, it's very easy for us to substitute Sunday worship for a quiet day in the deer stand. It's very easy for church membership to sort of fall by the wayside and we write it off as something that's antiquated. And I mean, after all, it's not even commanded in the Bible, so surely it's not that big of a deal. But here, Jesus speaks to a very specific group of people with clear boundaries of who is and who isn't a member of this church. And he says, hey, you've got people in your church And they're believing lies, right? Like they have adopted false doctrine and it is leading to worldliness. It's leading them to embrace sin. And it's your responsibility to go and confront them. And this church had neglected that responsibility. We seldom think about it that way here in the West that church actually doesn't exist primarily for me, although church does benefit us. But we rarely ask the question, how might my presence in worship actually benefit someone else? And when we do this, right, we come to a passage like this where a whole church is being confronted for the sins of a few. And it completely sort of ruffles our feathers and it goes against the grain of our experience. And we join Cain in Genesis 4 and we ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer Jesus gives to his church is yes, absolutely. You are your brother's keeper. When Jesus saves us, he saves us to himself, but he also saves us to one another. This church, what Jesus had against this church, was that it was failing to care for its members. This church had neglected their responsibility to confront erring brothers and sisters, and it was on them to watch out for one another and exercise church discipline so these believers would repent and be spared the sword of Jesus. So church, we have a responsibility too, obviously to watch our own lives and ask the question, where am I compromising in my own life? But we also have a responsibility to watch out for our brothers and sisters as well. And so maybe two questions that's helpful here in applying this section is first, uh, what, what are the areas in your life where you see yourself compromising to avoid the social cost. Where are the areas that you feel most pressured to sort of cut corners on faithfulness to Jesus so that there's no real pain, no real cost associated with following him? And then ask yourself the question, all right, well, if these are the things I'm tempted to compromise in, what am I trying to gain or what am I trying to preserve in making that compromise? And if you'll identify that, 
then I think you'll have a really good idea of what idols are receiving your worship. It's one way we have to keep a check on our heart. And secondly, another question you can ask here is not just where am I making the compromise, but also ask yourself the question, am I cultivating relationships in the church that allow me to lovingly confront and be confronted by people in the church? If the church has a responsibility to watch out for its members, and that responsibility is not on the senior pastor, that responsibility is on everyone who's taken a membership vow here to watch out for one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another, do you have the kind of relationships in the church that allow someone to come and encourage you, to know when you're erring, to know when you're in sin? Do you have the kind of relationship with someone else where you can notice that about them and confront them and encourage them? Folks, this is what church membership is all about. It's, it's why we go through the trouble of having a class and making sure that we're all kind of doctrinally on the same page and then we take vows and covenant to one another. And so this church was failing in this responsibility and it drew, uh, it, it drew the condemnation of Jesus. Let's so be careful that we don't do the same. And thirdly, not just... They, not, not just what they did well in their faithful endurance. We've looked at what they've done wrong in terms of their negligence and keeping up with one another and watching the sin in their own lives in the church. But thirdly, I want you to see what Jesus promises this church if they overcome. As Jesus confronts every church, he offers them a reward to the one who conquers, the one that overcomes. And in each of these letters, he's giving us a sort of different facet of eternity, right? Something else, kind of a different aspect of our salvation that we have in Christ. And here he gives three rewards to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. First, see it here in verse, uh, verse, see, sorry, verse 17. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, the hidden manna. You think back in the Old Testament when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, they had no means of feeding themselves, right? They were completely dependent on God to provide for them, and he did by giving them this new type of bread called manna. And in John 6.51, Jesus made a claim that would have sounded very heretical to his audience in the first century. Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. In other words, the manna of the Old Testament that fed your ancestors in the wilderness, that's actually just a shadow. I'm actually the true manna. I want you to hear the heart of Jesus in this, that he looks at this church who has failed to discipline its members, failed to really watch out for its own doctrinal purity, and Jesus warns them, but we want to hear that warning as a wooing, right? Jesus tells them, hey, you actually, instead of sitting at the table of the world, you can come and actually have food that will satisfy you. He offers them himself. He's the one that's going to satisfy the deepest hunger of their soul. These listeners were tempted to eat the sinful food of the world. Jesus offers them himself instead. He invites them to feed on him, and they will find invisible food, but true food that will satisfy them eternally. And next, Jesus offers them a white stone with a new name on it. In this culture, uh, a white stone was pretty symbolic. It was called a tessera. And uh, a couple of different ways this was used in the first century. In, in one instance, in court, 
If someone was on trial, the jury would deliberate to try and see if they were guilty or innocent. And the way that they would signify, excuse me, signify their decision is they would put a black stone forward for condemnation and a white stone forward for innocence. Another way this was used was it was also a token of admission. If you were invited to a feast, you were invited with a white stone, and when you show up at the door, you give a white stone to show that you had actually been invited to the party. It was the only way you were getting in. And so the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, if you stand firm and refuse to participate in the idolatry and the immorality around you, yes, you'll become social outcasts at best, and at worst, you're going to be dragged to court, and you're going to be falsely convicted by your peers. But if you will hold fast, you're going to receive a white stone from me that assures that you will that while you may be excluded from the table of the world, you will never be excluded from my table. Jesus says, you may be blackballed from the world, but you will always be invited to the feast of the Lamb of God. He gives them a white stone not just to show that they're invited, but he also gives them a white stone to show that they have been eternally declared innocent of all charges in the heavenly court because of the blood of the Lamb. And then Jesus says this white stone has a new name on it. It isn't explicitly stated what this name could be, but I believe that this name on this stone is actually the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Why? Because it's only in Jesus that we overcome. It's only in Jesus that we conquer. We don't overcome by our own strength. We don't overcome by our own zeal, our own goodness. We overcome by finding assurance of forgiveness in the Lamb. We overcome by resting in our acceptance, not in the world, but our acceptance in Christ to the table of God. We overcome not by striving, but by trusting. We are in Him and we bear His name. And this is the reward that Jesus promises to His people. So perhaps a, a closing question to ask as we make our way to the Lord's table this morning is I would just ask you, have you ever come to a place of seeing how remarkably unsatisfying the table of the world is? And if you haven't, my prayer is that you would see the emptiness of the sinfulness that the world has to offer and that you would turn to Jesus to satisfy your soul. And if you have, then I would encourage you to keep thinking through this question of where am I making the compromises and am I involved in the church in such a way that I am truly making myself my brother or my sister's keeper? So today, to the one who has never come to Jesus before or the one who, like the rest of us, is always having to be called away from the world's table, the invitation is the same. Come to Jesus, the bread of life that was broken for you, and be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can